Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. On this show, we've been speaking with political experts and musicians about the events and issues shaping the 2020 election. This week, we'll make the link between politics and music even clearer as we discuss campaign music, how the songs politicians play at their rallies, in their ads, and now on their Spotify playlists are chosen to deliver both clear and subliminal messages to potential voters. This week, my guest is Margaret Taleb, White House and politics editor at Axios and a CNN political analyst. Margaret is also a huge music fan who's paid close attention to the soundtracks of campaigns for as long as she's been on the trail. Throughout most of our history, campaigns wrote their own jingles about the candidates much the same way companies crafted catchy jingles to introduce their product and get it stuck in your head. Over the last 50 years, political and marketing campaigns have instead chosen popular songs that the audience already knows in order to align the candidate or product with that song's message. Margaret and I talk about which campaigns have harnessed the power of music effectively and why it's worked. We also discuss the inevitable awkwardness and occasional lawsuit that occurs when a campaign co-ops the music of a political opponent who voices that opposition, as is happening now with the Trump campaign on multiple fronts. We conclude by discussing Joe Biden's VP shortlist as it stands today and which factors the campaign should be considering the most as they make their final choice. Enjoy the show and keep on rocking. Margaret Talev, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thank you. It is great to be back. Margaret, you are here today to talk about campaign music. You wrote an article back in 2008 on Halloween Day, actually, it was published in McClatchy Newspapers. The soul of the Obama campaign is in the soundtrack. You talked about his playlist. And that campaign, we look back on it now, it was a remarkable moment in campaign history, right? The first African-American presidential nominee for the Democratic Party. And we talk about the Obama coalition. And so the music that then candidate Obama brought to the campaign trail was this unifying uh, soundtrack that brought together blacks and whites and Latinos, old and young. Yeah, you know, Bob, that was a really um, special campaign for me to cover because it was my first presidential campaign. I was much younger then. I was in my um, earlier mid-30s. And so I think sometimes like on your first campaign, you re- you have a fresh eye for things. And so the soundtrack for the Obama campaign just caught me right away in a way that I'm not sure it would have if I had been out on the trail for my third or fourth or fifth campaign. Um, but I think it also caught my ear because of that moment, because there are just a uh, few things that are more symbolic of the ability to unify or uh, kind of how different a- elements of society can come together than music. And Obama was such a sort of representational candidate that way. And so like, I was like trying to break down like, what is what are they doing here with this playlist, right? Because it would be U2, like City of Shining Lights, and then it was always Stevie Wonder, Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. And it was a real mix of music by 
white artists and African-American artists and like a dash, a hint of uh, world music or uh, other music, like sort of global bands. But um, really breaking it down, it was like what they called sort of this uplift music, right? And it was aspirational. It was the kind of hopes and dreams of the civil rights movement moving into the 70s and kind of the women's movement and black empowerment movement. And so it just captured this moment in time. And that was the point for those voters, like for that group of swing voters, people who had voted for Republicans in the past but were thinking about voting for Obama, or people who usually stayed home and didn't vote and were thinking about voting this time, like, it was squarely aimed at those listeners. And so, like, for the first time in my life, I was very conscious of how uh, music could motivate um, different parts of society or, or kind of mirror the emotions the different parts of society were feeling. And ever since covering Obama's soundtrack in 2008, uh, as I left McClatchy, as I went to Bloomberg, as I'm now at Axios. Um, this is something that's kind of a permanent part of what's in my brain when I am covering a campaign, because at least in a non-pandemic year, when there are so many big rallies, it is the ability to kind of put some music to a moment when you're in a stadium with 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 people. Um, that you're all sharing a moment together and and music is a way to share an experience together. Uh, but I do think that the moment we're going through where those group events, uh, where those rallies are, you know, largely on hold, um, that it has put a little bit of a pause in the normal um, experience of kind of campaign soundtracks and it shifted all of it much more to digital so that you can, if you love your candidate or you're interested in a candidate or you're interested in the music a candidate's playing, you can pull it all off of Spotify or whatever. You're much less likely to get it in the stadium experience, but you, but it is a way to plug into the zeitgeist of a campaign virtually. So Margaret, uh, as you know, I reached out to both campaigns about their current playlists and the Biden campaign got back to me and alerted me to a Spotify, their most recent Spotify campaign playlist. Uh, the Trump campaign never, never responded, but I'd like to begin with Trump and then we'll go to Biden because Trump did have one of these live rallies in Tulsa, Oklahoma, just a few weeks ago, and his playlist drew the ire of the family of Tom Petty, because he used the song, I Won't Back Down. Now, the Petty family, they released a statement, and they, they sent what they said was a cease and desist to the Trump campaign about the use of I Won't Back Down. Uh, their statement said, in part, Trump was in no way authorized to use the song to further a campaign that leaves too many Americans and common sense behind. Uh, they went on to say, both the late Tom Petty and his family firmly stand against racism and discrimination of any kind. Tom Petty would never want a song of his used for a campaign of hate. He liked to bring people together. Now, in the ensuing weeks, Neil Young and the Rolling Stones have both come out and asked the Trump campaign to not use Neil Young's Like a Hurricane or Keep on Rocking the Free World, like he used uh, uh, last week at, at his July 4th celebration in, at Mount Rushmore, and, or the Stones with their classic, You Can't Always Get What You Want. You are a deeply sourced reporter. I don't have many sources in the political world, but I've got a few sources in the music publishing world. And I spoke to a lawyer uh, for a music publisher, and I said, what recourse does 
the Petty Estate or Rolling Stones or Neil Young have to really stop the campaign from using a song? Yeah, what did he say? Well, first of all, it's complicated, but very little. Yeah. So there's a couple things going on. First of all, I think for some of these artists, it is more for them, it is more important to take the act of of just putting a clear line in the sand and saying, hey, I haven't endorsed this political candidate. And so you do that by like demanding that they cease and desist. Either way, if I can just be craven about it, the controversy generates more interest in your music. At plus, you've drawn your line in the sand and said, hey, I don't support this candidate just because they're playing my music. So uh, the Trump campaign so far has not backed down. So let me just set the table if you've never been to a Trump rally. It is, at the core of it, it's classic rock, but it's also like dystopian music, (laughs) like in a lot of ways, or music that is not like a typical campaign theme. Like when you think about, like I'm gonna think of the Clinton campaign, Bill Clinton's campaign way back when, when they would always play the Fleetwood Mac song, right? Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. That's right. It's very like future and optimistic, or at least it sounds like it is. Bridge to the 21st century. Yeah, if you don't listen too closely to the words, it just sounds like everything's, you know, coming up roses. So... But if you go to a Trump rally, like the most common like theme song, right? The opener song, it's always, you can't always get what you want. Are you kidding? That's a campaign song. So it's really unusual. Um, and also, if you've ever been to a Trump rally, they, um, to borrow a line from Spinal Tap, like 11 is one more. They play it so loud that if you are either covering the event or if you are just a person um, in the crowd who has to get there hours early, you really need to bring earplugs not to hurt yourself. And in the press pen, we have had a couple experiences at Trump rallies where we would need to like go to the advanced guys and say, can, can you guys turn it down? Like this feels unsafe. Like this is we didn't bring the proper equipment for like our ears to, and I've been in that situation where I've like trying to dig out an old used earplug from like a presidential helicopter and shove it in my ear so I can write a story. But the crowd gets really whipped up and excited about the loudness of the music. Um, And so like, here's a good example of some of the songs that they would play at a typical Trump rally. Um, He loves uh, the Rolling Stones. He loves Elton John. I think that Mick and Elton both have had condos in Trump properties before. I'm not saying that's part of it, but uh, so there's that. Um, But like, and he loves Neil Young and Neil Young is not like a Trump guy, but it's not just, um, I was going to say it's not just upbeat Neil songs, but really no Neil Young (laughs) songs are upbeat. But like they've been playing the devil sidewalk lately at Trump rallies and like unpack some of those words, the devil sidewalk, because it's um, the idea that you don't really know who's bad among you and, and that, you know, the devil's in places where you can't always suss it out or know who to trust. Like that is not a typical campaign song. Right. Um, like I'm trying to, I'm trying to go through here and think about some of the other songs that you most often would hear. There's the Lee Greenwood standard, God bless the USA. That is less a Trump nod and more a nod to the Republican Party. It is. And in fact, um, a little history here. It was written and of course performed by Lee Greenwood in 1984. And it was first played at the Republican National Convention in 1984. And that's when it was adopted by the Republican Party and has been played every year since. It's almost like the national anthem of the Republican Party. That's right. Exactly. 
Guns N' Roses is a big favorite at Trump events. But doesn't he play? And so I found an article from uh, the Milwaukee uh, Journal Times or the Journal Times in Wisconsin. I think it's Milwaukee. And this is from the the uh, rally in January, okay, in Milwaukee. And they, uh, a reporter there, Adam Rogan, wrote uh, an article about the Trump rally playlist and whether the artists are okay with the mu- him using their music. And he went through every song and gave the artist's opinion of Trump using the music. For example, Queen, Where Are the Champions? The band is not a fan. Guns N' Roses uses Knocking on Heaven's Door, which is a Bob Dylan song. Yeah, it's not even a Guns N' Roses song, right? But think about some of the other songs, like... Macho Man? Is Macho Man still on there? Yes, Macho Man is still on it, and so is YMCA. What I was talking to um, one of the president's advisors um, ahead of our conversation because I just kind of wanted to pick their brains on whether the pandemic has changed any of his thinking about music. I mean, obviously, that's like the least important thing that the pandemic could change your mind about. But has it affected the music he's playing? Because after all, he is still having rallies, even if not quite as many as he would have been otherwise. And that official told me, no, that the pandemic hasn't really at all changed the playlist, but that the playlist is kind of this organic living, breathing document, and that it does change. What this official told me is that it always has and and remains the case that it is just the president's whims, that he's the one who's picking this music. So it's not like he's put his campaign team together and said, okay, what are the kids listening to? Or how do we appeal more to Hispanic voters this week or something like that? It's just like music that the president likes. But again, it is all, it has an edge to it that is not typical of campaign thinking. On that point though, I can imagine him, you know, if he could do it all himself, he would, right? He definitely has a flair for the dramatic, right? Um, But it is like, you just can't miss the theme. It's almost like he's trolling the people who would be thinking about what kind of music he's playing. He's playing R.E.M. Doesn't seem like a Trump band. They're not happy about that. But which song? It's the end of the world as we know it. That's a campaign song, right? Adele, Rolling in the Deep. I mean, just a song about the misery of lost love and... American Carnage. This is what we're talking about. What about... What song did I find here? Aerosmith, Living on the Edge. Here's a song, Happy, Pharrell Williams, right? It's a happy cause I'm happy. But guess which movie that comes from? Despicable Me. Despicable Me, that's right. Despicable Me, part two. Uh, And so he was also using, at one point, Losing My Religion and Everybody Hurts from R.E.M. Yes. So these are not typical themes for campaign songs. Here's some others, like Michael Jackson, I want to be starting something, right? And he was using Beat It as well. Yes, just beat it. But see, now, Michael Jackson and Trump, they were longtime friends. I mean, everybody was a longtime friend of Donald Trump's until he got elected president. And then there's all these people who are disavowed, well, in Michael Jackson's case, but uh, a lot of people who, you know, now say, well, I just knew him. We were in New York together at the time, you know. He does have a Springsteen song. I think it's weird because Springsteen is so identified with the Democratic Party and he's so identified with kind of like that, you know, union, if you can be like progressive and in a union at the same time, you're a Bruce Springsteen guy, right? So um, to play Born to Run, which Obama used to play at his rallies in 2008 and 2012, and uh, Joe Biden has co-opted some Springsteen also. So to hear... um, Isn't that trolling? Could that be trolling? Yeah, I don't know. It could be. I mean, like... Uh, ACDC seems more like in Trump's wheelhouse. Trump really loves Tina Turner. He does. And he likes to play Simply the Best, which I think he likes the lyrics for that song also. But 
Elton John and Mick Jagger are still probably his two like main go-tos and Tiny Dancer and Rocket Man again they're just not like typical campaign songs uh, but he but he really relishes playing them and the crowd waits for them the crowd wants to hear the songs and it's like any other concert or big event um, it's like waiting for the applause line like some of this music when it kicks in the crowd is just excited because then they know that they are at the rally that the stuff that they came for is about to happen that because the songs are the cues the rhetoric um the stump lines will follow so you're saying that uh tiny dancer receives as much fervor from the crowd as build the wall does it's definitely a cue and like i don't like you look you're looking around in the audience and you're thinking i didn't figure you for a tiny dancer guy but you just don't know and that's the thing about music and um the music at at Trump rallies are definitely a brand. I think, to me, much more so than at Biden events. And in fairness to Joe Biden, we just haven't seen the same sort of general election, you know, rallies because of the pandemic. And I think in primaries, primaries tend to be a little bit more muted. It's more retail politics. You're doing more connecting with folks. But Biden is the the music and the energy from the music has never been as much a part of his events and his rallies. And so I look at his playlist as much more of um, kind of a, a group product where different folks from his campaign and maybe even from some of the other campaigns are um, kind of weighing in and putting together an experience that can appeal to a big tent and a broad coalition. And it's a much more traditional way of thinking about campaign music. It's the, the thematics are um, a little bit more kind of on brand. You're not hearing, <laughs> for the most part, uh, dystopian songs with inherently like ununifying messaging, you know, and it's, it's not just, it's not the pure enjoyment of, you know, the refrain that's driving the musical selections. It's, it's a little bit more traditional in terms of these, this is messaging that will uh, appeal to a lot of different people and send the right messages and be a vision of, you know, what they want the country to be and that sort of stuff. And that's, again, a much more traditional way of looking at a campaign soundtrack. Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Like you said, we haven't seen Biden rallies. I mean, we haven't seen them and we may not see any it's quite possible the level of um, campaign rally that we're used to, we may not see that in the next couple of months. Uh, but getting back just briefly to wrap up the Trump playlist, would you say that a Trump rally is the closest political rally you've been to that is like a concert? It's a really interesting way to ask the question. Like there's different kinds of concerts, right? And a Trump rally is like a stadium show, you know, and sometimes 
you want the stadium show, right? Because there's a tailgate and you can buy a cool t-shirt and you probably partied a lot before or after. It's times you really want like a night at the Birchmere or whatever your venue <laughs> is, right? Sometimes you yeah. want to be like 10 feet away and you want it to be acoustic and you want to make a personal connection. And that is not a Trump rally. A Trump rally is like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a massive concert. Like a Trump rally is like a packed indoor stadium where you're in the nosebleed seats and there's like a trapeze wire and there's some music involved, but there's a lot of costume changes also. And it's like a show. That's a Trump rally. Sounds like you um, just described an Elton John concert. <laughs> it's different than the Avett Brothers shows I've seen. Like, I would say like... Believe me, if Scott and Seth had their way, we'd have a few costume changes. <laughs> we'd have some trapezes. We've, we've done a few uh, uh, New Year's and Halloween shows where we've done costume changes. And you know what? They're hard to pull off. <laughs> different t-shirt, different jeans. A lot of timing. <laughs> a lot of timing involved. Uh, getting to the, the Biden campaign and their playlist, you know, when I read the playlist... And I received it from the campaign, uh, the Spotify link. First thing I thought was, like you said, this is well-conceived. You know, that it was, there was thought that went into this. This is kind of trying to nod back to Obama and yet forward to the growing movement within the country. Janelle Monet, Do My Thing, Everyday People, Sly and the Family Stone, Midnight Train to Georgia. Uh, maybe that's a, a nod to... Uh, maybe bringing Georgia into the Democratic column this year. Perhaps it's a nod to a vice presidential pick. Who knows? Uh, Love and Happiness, Al Green, You Keep Me Hanging On, Supremes, uh, Hold On, Alabama Shakes, Call Me by St. Paul and the Broken Bones, Think, Aretha Franklin, uh, Higher Ground, We the People, uh, Stevie Wonder, Higher Ground, Staple Singers, We the People, The Best, Tina Turner. We, so you see some duplication there. We see a little crossover. Crosses both campaigns, yep. Who's the best? Move on up, Curtis Mayfield, which was on Curtis the Obama, Mayfield. right? Mm -hmm. uh, got to be real, Cheryl Lynn. Ain't no stopping us now. Um, I think that that came out of that Philadelphia uh, soul movement of the 70s. And uh, that's, you know, Biden's a Philly guy. He's Philly, Wilmington, and Scranton. So that's a, a bit of a nod to, uh, to Biden. I think with Biden, you see um, more... Uh, racial diversity in the musical mix, although Trump does have some some black artists, but like he has uh, Aretha Franklin doing opera, like um, he has Tina Turner, but for the most part, Trump's music is like, white working class music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Biden's list is a lot more deliberate in terms of inclusion and mixes of eras and sounds. Trump's the concentration of Trump's playlist is like 1969 to 1978. And it's the music of his era, or to some extent, his era was already an adult then, but still, uh, but he was a young adult then. Um, this is like, okay, the head and the heart. Like, I don't know if Joe Biden's listening to head and the heart, but somebody, you know, who does advance for his events is. Right. And Birmingham by Shovels and Rope. I mean, that's a band that we play with all the time. Maybe, maybe he does. You don't know. But then there's Jimi Hendrix, Bold as Love, which is an amazing song. Etta James, Something's Got a Hold on Me, Inner City Blues, another Etta James. There's a few Leon Bridges tunes. I think with, with Biden, 
because, again, you're not going to see the big rallies with the Democrats this year, that this music is going to be a way for voters and supporters to connect virtually and to be downloading these songs or playing them on Spotify or something like that on a listening service. And so it is a way to discover different sounds that you didn't know before. And it is definitely a way to uh, message to the protest movement. I think like I wasn't hearing a lot of Marvin Gaye in the Joe Biden playlist until George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. But so many of the songs from Obama's original playlist, like Curtis Mayfield, are about empowerment, move on up, you know. And I think we'll see more and more of those songs on the Biden playlist because it is, again, it's deliberate. You know, can I share this Biden story um, with you? I haven't heard Coldplay played on the playlist, but I wonder how long it will take until we see that. I just have this searing memory of being at Bo Biden's funeral when uh, the vice president's son passed away. And I was in the pool of journalists that were covering uh, him that day. And so we went to the church uh, where the service was. And Chris Martin, Coldplay, I guess, was Bo's like, favorite band. And Chris Martin had agreed to come and sing a song at the service. The vice president said that Till Kingdom Come had been his son's like favorite song or one of his favorite songs. And I just remember Chris Martin doing this incredible live acoustic version of the song. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house, including in the press corps who was covering it. And it was one of those moments when the music was not transactional and it wasn't um, strategic. It was just genuine and it just hit that room with such force. And I have been wondering whether Biden is going out of his way not to play Coldplay music because it's just too close to the emotionality of it or whether we will hear more and see more Coldplay um, in the weeks and months to come. That would uh, be very much in line with Biden as a a man of great compassion and a, a man who does not hesitate to reach out to someone who needs a hug. We've never had such a contrast in people. And you can hear it in the music. You can, because Trump's uh, rallies and the music that he chooses, in addition to being sort of dystopian, as we've been talking about, they're also raw and energetic and fun sometimes. And it's like being at a carnival. And it's like, um, you know, if you're on a road trip, like I was just on a road trip with my family and different music sets the tone. And so like, I always want to listen to like the brooding singer songwriter stuff. And like, if everyone else is like, oh, God, can we put something else on? Like, this is so, like, mellow. I don't want to be mellow. I want it to be, like, amped up and have a beat and stuff. And, like, Trump's music is super amped. And the Biden music is much more, like, it's the lyrics. And you and it has to be quieter so that you can listen to the words because the words are, like, taking you to the place where you want to feel or the place where you want to be. The Biden music is much more, and this is true of Obama, too, the Biden music is much more of a solitary experience or, like, a small group experience where you're thinking about ideas that are important to you or a moment where you want to just be. And like Trump's music is like, let's do it, you know? And I do think that these playlists reflect not just the different personalities, but like the different feel and tone and vibe and goals. If you enjoy thinking about these kind of things, it's just kind of fun to unpack it through those eyes. It's incredible that Biden has Michael Kiwanuka on his playlist. One of the greatest artists out today, in my opinion, um, one of the greatest uh, singer-songwriters and musicians. But uh, the fact that that is on his playlist is just—it's just remarkable. Like you talk about that—that 
that um, the cerebral nature of a Biden playlist versus the guttural nature of the Trump playlist. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're going to do this in serious XM terms, Biden playlist is way more of the spectrum and Trump is like somewhere across between deep tracks and lithium, right? Like it's, um, yeah, there's not going to be any Michael Kiwanuka on a Trump playlist, but um, if you're feeling Paradise City, you're never going to get that at a Biden rally, you know? Let's put this in the historical context of campaign music. So uh, I did a little research. I found a great book, um, History of Campaign Music, Benjamin Shewing and Air Casper, Don't Stop Thinking About the Music, The Politics of Songs and Musicians in Presidential Campaigns. And they talk about how the initial political music, campaign music, was written for the inauguration. Like there were all these songs about George Washington, but not until he became president. But then in 1840, you have a change, right? You have the William Henry Harrison, the Whig candidate against the incumbent, Martin Van Buren, the Democrat, the protege of uh, Andrew Jackson. And that was the, uh, what was it, Log Cabin and Cider campaign. And the song, the big hit from that year was Tippecanoe and Tyler Two, <laughs> yeah. which I found a great version by They Might Be Giants. <laughs> so I don't know if we can link to it, if we can play it. I don't know, but we need to, everyone needs to hear it because it is. I think we need to hear that. It is amazing. I, I, uh, rec- I will send you the YouTube clip that I found it from. But think about 1840, okay? You had Jackson was president from uh, 1828 to 1836, and that was the great populist movement, right? That was the enlarging the voter franchise at the time. So you had this populist wave, and although we had a a big economic upheaval during the Martin Van Buren administration, William Henry Harrison, he was a a military hero, and he rode to power uh, on this populist wave. And so this Tippecanoe and Tyler II is significant because it, it was a grassroots song, a song that came from the people. And of course, the Tyler or the Harris administration was brief. It was only 40 days because he died from pneumonia from uh, giving his, uh, his inaugural speech in the rain without a coat. Um, but then in the, uh, the late 19th century, you had the campaigns began to hire professional songwriters, specifically some from the Tim Pan Alley District of New York City. In the 1920s, you have radio, right? Radio's on the scene. And now you have vaudeville stars uh, who would appear like political candidates would broadcast their speeches on the radio. You had evolved vaudeville stars would appear with them and sing songs as part of the campaign. And the authors of this book, Shewing and Casper, say this is the switch from retail to wholesale politics, right? You're beginning to reach a mass audience. After World War II, you've got television. And of course, the big the big uh, campaign song that political junkies like you and I would remember from this period is I Like Ike. It was all over television. Uh, and then In the 70s and 80s, we begin to see campaigns, instead of writing their own songs, they begin to look at using songs that are already popular, outsourcing. And why? Well, not only is it easier, but it also, it connects the voter to something they already like anyway. And it connects, I like this song, this guy's playing this song, this guy must like this guy. 
Yeah, it added like a cool factor. And it also really became more prevalent around the time of FM radio, right? Where if everybody's listening to FM, then, which sounds so quaint now, because whatever, uh, like all technology, you know, um, we've moved on a little bit. But um, that was also a moment, I think, that, uh, that helped to explain how pop music and bands that already had their own image and promotionality and kind of pop culture touchstones would be something that a campaign would want to latch on to to get some of that cool factor, especially to bring in younger voters. So it's, it's funny uh, bringing it back full circle. We were talking about campaign songs, like Trump uses songs that, um, that you wouldn't think of as being campaign songs, right? Well, John McCain used Thunderstruck. And, you know, that's a song about promiscuous sex and ACDC, whatever, you know, it doesn't really fit what we know about John, John McCain. And then Mitt Romney, in his uh, 2008, he used Elvis's A Little Less Conversation. <laughs> right. So. You're like, oh, please, so let's anyway. get the video for this one. Uh, we have seen in the past sometimes messaging for individual songs. They are like, oh, did they have they actually listened to the words to the song? But with Trump, you know he has listened to the words to the song, and it's deliberate, and that's what makes it so interesting. I think a lot of uh, his detractors um, don't give him enough credit. His processing is so chaotic and convoluted. But like you said, he's like this ultimate showman and this producer of larger than life events in his mind. And there is there is a method. You know, we all we always say uh, Trump crazy or crazy like a fox. There's something instinctual about these songs. It's not like these are you know, unpopular songs, they're hugely popular songs because music is a way for us to kind of exercise those parts of ourselves that we don't love the most, the parts that are like angry, the parts that feel rage or jealousy or sorrow or regret or longing or um, an inability to break through to the other side. Like if you're tapping into that and that's what your base is feeling all the time, then you are seizing on a real energy on a moment. Um, that can propel action. And that kind of action can be much more guttural than poignant music with thoughtful lyrics about the way that you want the world to be. They can both be really powerful songs, but there's an activator element to the songs with a more negative or dystopian theme um, that I think is is part of this and that, and that you can't overlook it. It It fits part of the overall campaign messaging. And plus, in some cases, they're just darn good songs. That's right. Both campaigns have great songs. You know what I've been looking towards in Biden's case? Because he's got this whole, like, universe of, you know, it was a 25-person race at one point. And so he's got this whole universe of people who he ran against for the nomination who are either on his short list to be the VP, all women in that case, and mostly African-American women. And then all these other folks like... Beto, who's a musician himself, or Pete, who's a big Avett Brothers fan. Uh, so I've been watching like the Biden playlist to see how much of that gets absorbed and whether we can read any clues about Elizabeth Warren's influence or Kamala Harris's influence. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's playlist, Once Upon a Time, of course, her kind of theme song was Nine to Five. 
Uh, I like Dolly Parton too, but that's Love pretty, Dolly pretty poppy on the Dolly Parton uh, scheme and has much more to do with the messaging than the song, I think. Like, But Nina Simone was part of Elizabeth Warren's playlist. And I think Nina Simone would fit the moment fantastically for the protest and reform movement inside the Democratic Absolutely. Party right now. You know, like same with, are we going to hear a lot of Kamala Harris's songs? Is that going to mean anything? We'll know soon enough whether it means anything. But with Kamala Harris, you're much more likely to find younger and more diverse music and also music with like a little bit more energy, like maybe some Nicki Minaj, mm-hmm. um, you know, some uh, some Alicia Keys, some Ariana Grande. Uh, and Janelle Monet, as you said earlier, has already been incorporated into Biden's playlist. Well, Margaret, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed it. I just want to go listen to some music now. Let's go listen to some music. <laughs> Real quick, before I let you go, you kind of brought it up. Vice presidential. What do you think? Can you make a prediction? Who, who, who are the top three? I'll caveat by saying we don't know. Like, we don't know. We don't know until we know. And I'm not sure that the Biden campaign knows. Everybody who I talk to thinks that both Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, uh, maybe not in that order, remain in that top list of contenders. Um, but whether that list also includes um, Tammy Duckworth or whether it will include Val Demings, uh, whether Susan Rice uh, could uh, make it into that final final list. I think all of that is where I don't hear a lot of consensus from people in the know. Uh, but most people think that Harris and Warren um, will remain in that uh, top list till the very end. But I'm really interested to see who he chooses. I talked to Chris Freights a couple months ago and I mentioned Val Demings and he felt that she was untested and that you have these like Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, is that the mayor of Atlanta? Keisha Lance Bottoms, pretty sure. Uh, Val Demings, you have some of these just really uh, impressive and um, incredible. I mean, Val Demings during the impeachment hearings, the way she executed her part of that, uh, I think raised a lot of eyebrows and shed a lot of light on her future in the Democratic Party. And then the way Keisha Lance Bottoms has handled both the pandemic and the racial situation, the George Floyd killing and the the ensuing Black Lives Matter protests in Atlanta have given her... um, kind of a moment in the spotlight. Uh, do you think Biden's going to yield towards somebody who's tested, politically tested, or he might take a chance on a rising star? I mean, I think the old uh, cliche in vice presidential searches has always been you want someone who does no harm, uh, because it's not clear how much someone can help you. In Barack Obama's case, part of the thinking was that Biden, uh, as his running mate, would help kind of Uh, round out a candidate who, uh, in Obama's case, um, to some extent had to answer for, did he have enough experience or, you know, remember Hillary's old line, you know, are you ready to answer the phone at three in the morning? So Biden was uh, older. Biden was white. Biden had foreign policy experience. So he kind of rounded out the package of what Obama might be offering. And together, you know, he added to the team. But uh, for the most part, he had enough experience that he was unlikely to become a source of controversy for Obama. So in Biden's case, it seems like Trump thrives on having someone to shadow box with or someone to fight. And he's tried really hard to fight with Biden, but Biden doesn't have a lot of sharp edges. And so when you look at polling, it's been hard for Trump to come up with the moniker that will stick. He tried Sleepy Joe for a long time. It didn't really work. He tried arguing that Biden was old or out of it. And 
what we saw in some early uh, polling and focus grouping was that older Americans, older voters didn't like that because they didn't like the idea of slamming older people just because of their age. So then Trump has tried to fine tune it. Can he argue that Biden, you know, that there's a senility argument to be made? And then Biden started arguing that Trump might be senile. And so uh, the president has been looking for a way to poke at Biden. But if he can't find that, he will try to look for a way to poke at the running mate. And so part of what Biden's team has to be thinking about is would they open themselves up and make themselves vulnerable because of their choice of running mate? They don't want to do that. Uh, But they do want a running mate who, if possible, helps motivate people to turn out. They don't want a running mate who makes people angry enough not to turn out if they were going to turn out beforehand. And so you're weighing all these considerations. And then, of course, Biden is in his late 70s. Um, You know, he's probably looking at a one-term run. Then you're looking at setting someone up. Could you set someone up who could be ready to assume the presidency in four years who, or who already is? And so these are the sorts of considerations. And the vetting process, I mean, there is kind of an organic or an instinctive element to it. A president wants a vice president who they can click with and connect with and work well with and who they like. But the vetting process is uh, much more strategic and kind of cutthroat than that. The lawyers go through all of your, you know, finances. They look at all that your political record. They um, they vet you. It's a thorough. It's a thorough financial vetting process. It's a thorough uh, legacy and record and vote record. If you've been in politics before, vetting process. They look for vulnerabilities that you could bring to the ticket, uh, and then ultimately at the end of that road are what in the past have always been sit-down conversations in person with the nominee and uh, and their choices for running mate. And I assume that they will be in person again, probably with a mask on and probably from six feet apart. But before you get to that point, uh, they're looking for not only what you could bring to the ticket, but for what you could take away from the ticket. Would Susan Rice bring Benghazi back up? That's probably inherently baked into it. Uh, but I think the question in that case is, are those are the people who are really going to respond to that who ever thought that was an issue or who still do now after all these investigations? Um, are those people who ever would have voted for um, a Joe Biden ticket anyway? And the answer is probably no. Uh, but then there is the motivation factor. Will, will that be a lightning rod that Trump could take advantage of? Uh, would that encourage people who would not have voted for Trump otherwise to vote for him? You know, I'm sure that's part of the equation. I'm sure with uh, Kamala Harris, her record as a prosecutor, with Elizabeth Warren, her record in the Senate, with Val Demings, her uh, record in police work and her husband's record uh, in uh, law enforcement as well. So it's one of those situations where all of your strengths come with the flip side that you have a record to be dug into and whether it can be politically weaponized. So this is the fun part, as they say. But um, but pretty soon we'll know who uh, Biden has recommended and uh, and who he chooses. And at that point, we'll know what both of the tickets look like. And in a normal year, we'd say then the rallies begin. Um, I don't think that's going to happen really this fall. I really don't. I think Trump has been having these rallies, but as the cases surge in some places and and as the contact tracing is not great in this country, but to the extent that they can figure it out, they're looking at major gatherings to understand what implications those have for the spread. So if political rallies are, are having any demonstrable impact on the increasing cases, it's, there's going to be a lot of pressure on both campaigns to avoid those through the end of the cycle. And we'll be listening to music on our iPhones. Yes, we will. A Trump rally, uh, I guess, next week in New Hampshire. So 
we'll see how that goes. Uh, Margaret, again, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for, for being with us. Let's do it again. Thank you, Bob. I can't wait. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. Osiris Pod.